I invite you to turn your Bibles to Mark 14. Mark chapter 14 this morning. Uh, We're going to be looking at verses uh, 53 through the end of the chapter. Again, we're going to be covering many verses uh, in Mark 14. And uh, we'll be just joining in our series. Uh, We've been working through Mark's gospel. We've been learning more about Jesus as we go along. Uh, Last week... Uh, my heart was profoundly moved and continues to be so by observing Jesus in Gethsemane. Uh, God has used it as a source of encouragement to me throughout the, the course of the last two weeks and even, I think, affected my prayer life, I hope, forever. Jesus in Gethsemane was a time of overwhelming sorrow for him. Things were really bad. He was neglected by his closest friends the three disciples who were close to him. He was betrayed by an insider. He was seized by a a mob of people, and all people forsook him. All people, including a young man who runs away in shame instead of sticking with Jesus. During his prayers in the garden, his prayers of preparation for this moment of his betrayal, arrest, and crucifixion, Jesus is so overcome that he collapses and he pours out his heart to God. He prays to God, but Jesus believed in the power of God. He made his request to God, remove this cup from me, and then he surrendered his will to the will of his Father. What example Jesus is to me of enduring persecution and trial in the garden The garden should remind us to go to the Lord in prayer, to be steadied in prayer when we face persecution. Today we're going to find that his difficulties have only begun. As he continues, we continue through this, he moves toward his trial. In his trial, Jesus stands before the most powerful men in the world, and he declares that he is indeed the Son of God. The theme of the text that we're going to be looking at today, and I think also next Sunday, the theme of the text is bearing witness. Bearing witness. I see a word for witness or testimony or to testify seven times in the section. It's not found very often, only really a handful of times ever in the Gospel of Mark other than this, but seven times to witness, to testify, testimony. So this morning... We will learn from Jesus about bearing testimony for God. Have you ever been moved by watching someone or observing someone boldly or warmly share their faith in Jesus Christ with another? Has that ever moved you? Have been able to observe or be a part of a conversation where you observed another believer, maybe a pastor, maybe an elderly believer, maybe a friend who turned the conversation toward the interests of someone who did not know Christ, who showed interest in their life, who was concerned for a soul, and who then shared the gospel of Jesus Christ. Have you ever been moved by seeing someone do that before? For me, I can think of many people, especially as a young man, and seeing and observing and being part of these, but for me, one of the best friendships that I have for this is 
a mentor that you're going to hear preach here soon. His name is Sam Horn. He's coming for a conference. As a young preacher uh, at Northland, teacher at Northland, I remember going with Sam, and it seemed like every time we went out and talked where there could, could be an unbeliever anywhere, Sam very warmly and kindly got to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This happened, as I said, as a young preacher and observing him in Northland and then joining in with him. It also happened in our time in Minnesota. We're in Minnesota. Uh, Sam and I would like to to, uh, take lunches together. This is something we did often, but uh, not too long in my time there, he found this Coney Island hot dog place. And to be honest with you, it was a bit of a dive. I don't even like Coney Island hot dogs. But I went with Sam. As we were there the first time, he met a, 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 a short Jewish man who was foul-mouthed serving. But Sam very kindly, graciously asked this man about his life, showed interest in him, and got to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I said, wouldn't you know it? Four weeks after that, just about every time we would get together for lunch, Sam would say, hey, let's go to that Coney Island hot dog place. You know, I'm like going there looking for like a salad or something after a while. Just, it's not my favorite thing. But after a short amount of time going and seeing this man, this man would uh, take breaks from working the grill, and he would come over and he would sit down with us. Because he knew Sam loved him, and Sam was telling him the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What, a, what an example of bearing witness for Christ. This morning, I want to learn from the way Jesus bore witness to himself. And I think we can learn from him as well. So let's look at Jesus' witness at his trial. Jesus actually undergoes two trials in Mark's gospel, a Jewish one, which we're going to read about and study today, Mark 14, 53 through 72, all of the end of 14, and then a Roman one, which follows, Mark 15, 1 through 15. Now, to appreciate the Jewish trial that we look at today, and how I want to see how it unfolds, Mark starts by portraying the background to Jesus' Jewish trial in verses 53 and 54. So look, look with me at the background. It says, and they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and elders and scribes came together. And Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Because this is a background to Jesus' Jewish trial. So after Jesus is arrested in Gethsemane, the guards escort him at night, same night, into the home of Uh, or the house of the high priest. The high priest here is not named in our text, but he's going to perform a very important role in the story, even in Mark's gospel. Other gospels tell us this is Caiaphas, the high priest. Uh, But as we look at the trial, I just want to point out a few things, even in the background, as we go along, that you'll see about this trial. This trial is not in accordance with the Jewish way of doing trials. 
Okay, we're not going to turn there, but you could go to Deuteronomy 16, and you can see how Moses laid out in his law how the Jews were supposed to go about trying someone for a crime. Okay, they don't follow any of that. Trials did not normally take place at night. That was forbidden by the law, but this one does. Trials did not normally take place in uh, the, the home of the high priest. Upper room in the high priest's home. Uh, the, the customary place for the Sanhedrin to meet was called the Chamber of the Hewn Stone, which is just north of the temple, adjacent to the court of the Israelites. Okay, so that's where this is supposed to be occurring. But the location and the timing of the trial are only the beginning of the abnor- abnormalities. We're going to see more about that as we continue to read. Now, before we see more of the abnormalities, though, there's one other part of the background I want you to see. Okay. We find out in the background that there is indeed one disciple who does follow Jesus. Remember, all had left him? Well, one somehow finds his way back and at a distance follows him and comes into the outer courtyard. Jesus is in an upper room inside but into the outer courtyard of the high priest's home, and it's no one other than Simon Peter. Okay, We find Simon Peter warming himself at a fire with guards. That's all we see right now. We'll find out more later. So having said that, Mark proceeds to the interrogation of Jesus. Okay, so as we look at the interrogation of Jesus, there are three phases to it. The first phase is verses 55 through 59. Okay, and what I'm going to call phase one, a fixed trial. Okay, look at me at verse 55. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We have heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I'll build another, not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. Okay, so as we look at this passage in this trial, we see the whole trial has been fixed. This should not surprise us because these are the same people who just gave blood money to Judas to get Jesus, to betray him. I think the fixed nature of this trial becomes very clear to me as you look down to verse 55. When it says the entire council was, and this is, this is important, was seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. Okay, does that sound like a fair trial? Not really, right? R.T. France says it this way. This is a, a hearing in search of a charge. Not a trial based on, on, an, on an already formulated accusation. Maybe it was a trial. I think a trial based on an already formulated accusation. A, a hearing in search of a charge. So they brought false witnesses against Jesus, and some of them said that Jesus was going to destroy the temple. Jesus, of course, never said that. He said if the temple, when the temple is destroyed, that it would be replaced by the temple of its body three days after he would rise from the dead. But he never said that he would do that. He would destroy it. Regardless, these false witnesses don't even agree with one another. I mean, how ironic 
They're bribing the false witnesses, and then they're not even agreeing. Their trumped-up charges won't stick. So, phase two. Okay, fixed trial, phase two. Uh, We get into some things here about uh, a direct interrogation. Now, before we do that, I want to make an application or two here. As we consider the fixed trial against Jesus, I have a few contemporary applications or thoughts that hit me here. I've got two for you, okay? First of all, I want to make the point that some things never change. I mean, consider the frequency of fixed trials throughout history, okay? In many high-profile political cases involving struggles over political power, the establishment is quick to believe or recruit testimonies that will further their agenda. In some cases, the establishment even pays or coaches witnesses. So setting up and believing false witnesses is not just a first century phenomenon. I think even our our own civil government reveals the near impossibility of fair trials in political matters. So the first application is some things never change. We got a fixed trial here, but that's like not stopped there. The other application I will make is is to say this, that I want you to consider the contemporary desire to discredit Jesus as well. Okay, so this whole thing is rigged from the very beginning, but that hasn't stopped either regarding Jesus. Jesus is still on trial in our world today. You believe that? Jesus and his word. James Edwards writes it this way. He, he, he says, Attempts to discredit Jesus no doubt characterize every generation. And so men and women, make no mistake about it. Morally progressive people in our own culture are seeking to discredit Jesus and his ways. Sometimes blatantly, sometimes underhandedly. Our culture is not neutral toward Jesus. It hates him and the truth that he proclaimed. And without an intervention by God, things will get worse. The culture will do things like this. Our culture will do things like this. It, they will start with abortions only for physical reasons or the well-being of a mother. Then they would advance to abortions in the first trimester. Then the third, moments before a baby is delivered. And then disposal of babies already delivered. It's sick. It's hate. It's murder in all of its forms. And it is an attempt to silence the Son of God, and the voice of the Word of God. So, don't be naive. The world is always seeking testimony against Jesus to put Him and His words, His ways, to death. Okay, so that's true now. 
And it was true in this Jewish trial. A fixed trial at night with false witnesses in the, in the wrong location. That leads us to phase two, as I said before, direct interrogation. Look at verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent, made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Okay, so what's going on here? This false trial, rigged trial's not working, false witnesses aren't working, nothing's sticking, and so the high priest takes things into his own hands. Direct interrogation. He asks Jesus two questions. Do you have an answer to the charges made before you this day? And, and Jesus doesn't answer that one, and so he asks, are you, he just gets right to it, are you the Christ, the Messiah, the Jewish anointed ruler? And are you the son of the blessed? He says blessed because they won't pronounce the name of Yahweh. You're the son of the blessed one. And so Jesus doesn't answer the first question, but when he gets to the second question, his answer is quite bold. While he's been reluctant to reveal his identity at different points in the book, now it's time. He gets, comes right out with it. He says, indeed, he is the Messiah and the Son of God. And then he adds two statements which are framed around two participles. The two key words are sitting and coming. Or seated and coming. He says that those men, the Sanhedrin, high priest, others like them, will see him Seated at the right hand of God. I think that that is describing, my opinion, the enthronement of Jesus, the exaltation of Jesus at the right hand of God. So you, and I think that this speaks to humanity as well, you will see me seated at God's right hand, the enthronement of God, the exaltation of Jesus. And then coming. It's the second part. Coming with the clouds of heaven. I take that as a reference to the second coming of Jesus. The point of both of these statements then have to do with judgment. The point of what he's saying here is, Jesus is saying something like this. One man called it a reversal of rules. Okay, so right now, I'm standing before 70 or 71 judges who are scrutinizing me in this false trial. But there's coming a day when you will stand before me, the one who sits at the right, enthroned at the right hand of God and who will come with all the clouds of heaven. Well, this is too much for the high priest to take, so he leads the council to phase three, a final decision, verses 63 through 65. Final decision. Verse 63, and the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witness do we need? That's kind of ironic, right? All your other ones were bogus. You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Some of them began to spit on him, to cover his face, to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. 
After hearing Jesus' answer here, the, the high priest dramatically draws his conclusion. He rips his inner garments and he demands for decision. He says that Jesus has been blasphemy, blasphemous, although actually there's nothing really blasphemous about anything he said. He is the Son of God. It's not blasphemous to claim to be the Messiah if you're the Messiah. But to the high priest, this is a blasphemous charge, and so the Jewish leaders join him in making a decision. They condemn him on the spot at night in the high priest's home. They then spit on him. That's vile. Ever been spit on before? I mean, Jesus had predicted this was going to happen. They're spitting on him. They put a bag over his head, and they play a game. They start beating him and striking him, and then they mock him by saying, tell us. Which one of us just hit you? After that cruel game is over, they deliver him over to the guards who then, the text says, they receive him with blows. This is the interrogation of Jesus. I wish we could read it with fresh eyes again just to see just how horrible this treatment is in this fixed trial. But as we continue here, the scene turns in a mysterious direction in verse 66 into a story about Peter. Okay, and so I want to I read verses 66 through 72 with you, and we'll close by looking at these verses. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to say to him, say to the bystanders now, this man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, saying, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the, the, the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And here's the final actions of Peter in the book. And he broke down and wept. Coming to the story about Peter, I think one of the questions we should ask, you know, in, in studying the Bible, you should ask two questions. You should ask, what does this mean? And then once you figure that out, you ask, why is it here? What does this mean? Why is it here? And in this case, I want to ask you, why is this story of Peter right here? Why is it here? And I want to, I want to suggest that this is another Markin sandwich. Remember we've been talking about this? How Jesus, well, how Mark will take two stories and he kind of splits one of them apart and he puts the central thought in the middle. Okay. Remember back at the beginning of the story, up in verse uh, 55, I think it is. 55, 54, verse 54, in the background, it says, and Peter had followed them at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. It's not just like random background information put in there, but we learn that's the beginning of the sandwich. This is about Peter. This is an interesting literary style from, from Mark, by the way, I yeah, this, this scene, this opening scene, I think would create a great opening scene for like a movie. 
right? The, the hero of the movie, the hero of the movie is taken by force into an upper room, and then the, the, the camera just kind of scans the crowd outside, and you see that one person. Wait a second. That undercover person is his friend. Okay, so then you go up to the upper room, and you think, man, yeah, but that friend, like, we never know what happened to him. What's going to happen? Maybe he's going to come and rescue him, right? Get him. But, but in this story, that doesn't happen. There is no heroic stand here, just denials, retreat, and weeping. Regardless here, Mark's narrative is amazing. Side by side, he describes the interrogations of Jesus and Peter. The interrogation of Peter has different stages or phases as well, and I want to work through them. I've got two. I break up into two. Phase one I call accusations and denials, verses 66 through 71. This is stuff we perhaps have heard before, but that's phase one. Okay, And the first accusation denial occurs in verses 66 through 68. We just read it. And what we learned there is that while Jesus is interrogated by the most powerful Jewish authority of his day and a council of 70 people, Peter is interrogated by whom? A little servant girl. Little servant girl. Okay. All right. Got the two trials happening simultaneously. Jesus, 71. Peter, little girl. While Jesus is firm and bold in the midst of trial by the grace of God. Peter cowers in fear and denies Christ because of the intrusion of a girl. I want you to notice the girl, though. <laughs> Look at her in verse 67. I mean, while it is a little girl, in some way she does creep me out a little. Because look at verse 67. And seeing Peter warning himself, she looked. Okay, two words for seeing. It's kind of like what, what Mark is describing. Is, and, you know, just kind of glancing his way, she then made a hard stare at Peter. <laughs> Perhaps he knew he was in trouble. Who's this little server girl? No, man, she's staring at me. And she comes up to him and she says, you were with the Nazarene Jesus. Peter denies it. He says he doesn't even know what she's talking about. And then what does he do? He flees the courtyard and goes to the gate, the gateway, near the entrance of Caiaphas. I think Peter knows he's in trouble. He's trying to get near an exit. Mark Strauss helped me with that. He said, Peter now knows that he is vulnerable to recognition, so he moves to the forecourt, which probably means the entryway or vestibule just inside the gate. He wants to be closer to the exit if escape is necessary. That's the first accusation of denial. She says, I, you were there. He says, I don't even know what you're talking about. That leads to another encounter. Look at verse 69. Another accusation and denial. Verse 69. And the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. So now he hears this little girl and she's talking to everyone else. And so he just offers a denial. That leads to one final accusation in the middle part of verse 70 and verse 71. 70, it says, and after a little while, while the bystanders again, the bystanders again said to Peter, 
certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man of whom you speak. At this point, the accusation becomes quite strong for Peter. The crowd recognizes, the bystanders recognize his speech, I think. His speech. You sound like a Galilean from up north. You've got an accent that betrays you. You must be with Jesus. And so Peter responds in two ways. I mean, if you, if you just map this out in, in the original language, you'd say, here's two responses. He responds by, with a curse and with swearing or an oath. So he pronounces a curse and an oath. It's not really clear with the curse who he's cursing. The ESV kind of takes it one way. So he's putting a curse on himself, and that could be. He's either, in my opinion, he's pronouncing a curse on himself if he's lying, or he's cursing Jesus. I think it could be either. But all is not quite finished with this story. We go to phase two. Phase two of Peter's interrogation, verse 72. I call this phase realization and sorrow. Verse 72, and immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. In conjunction with Peter's last denial, he hears this rooster crow, and it triggers his memory. He remembers what Jesus said before. You hear rooster crow twice. You will deny me indeed three times. And so that leads to Peter's last actions, which are found in three words in the original. They're found in the very last part of this verse. Verse 72, it says, and he broke down and wept. These words are quite powerful. Uh, they could be translated this way, and falling down, Peter wept. Mark's not interested to know how Peter gets out of this, how he leaves the courtyard or the, 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 the gateway. He just says, and falling down, Peter wept. Peter here feels strong remorse after his repeated failures to stand for God. So consider this story in Peter's interrogation and his ending remorse. I'm mindful of the original readers of this gospel. Mark writes this book originally, I believe, for Roman believers who are bearing up under persecution for the name of Christ. I think it could very possibly be that many of them had been put in a place where they would either need to deny Jesus or die. And some of them, perhaps, chose denying Jesus. And yet they know that later on, Peter would repent, be restored, and become a rock for the church, even in Rome itself, where they are. Yet in this instance, Peter fails to bear witness for Christ and denies him repeatedly. This morning, we have considered two examples of bearing witness One man stands and boldly proclaims Christ before the most powerful Jewish leaders of his day. 
the other shrinks under the intrusion of a servant girl. And I ask you, how is your witness for Christ? Do your co-workers, for instance, know that you are a follower of Christ? Do they know that you're here today in church because you love Christ? Do you stand up for Christ and his ways there? Or do you quietly listen at the water cooler? To subtle sometimes or direct attacks on Jesus and his words. Silently. A mute. Allowing people to attack the one that died for you. Do you avoid any discussion of religion? I've got this dichotomy, got my religious life, I've got my secular life, and I make sure never to bring Christ into that. Might you look too much like Peter? Wouldn't it be better to just do this? Tell people, I love Jesus. I love him. I believe what he says. And I've arranged my entire life around this, folks. Maybe you feel, maybe you feel weak, but God can change you like he did Peter who won't fail to be a witness like this again after God restores him. It's my prayer that this week God will help you be a good witness, bearing testimony for God in the model of Jesus. Not Peter. You want another good example? It's not Jesus. Stephen. We read about today. The face of death stood unapologetically, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to work through this text. I am so thankful, Lord, in my life, where you have put flesh on what it looks like to be a good witness. I'm thankful for friends, for mentors, who showed me how to be warm and compassionate with coworkers or people in a restaurant or neighbors. I'm so thankful for seeing that and for their faithfulness. But Father, today I'm even more thankful for seeing Jesus and how he stood in the midst of a fixed trial with false witnesses, the wrong location. He stood against the most powerful Jewish leader of his day, Caiaphas. Lord, I pray that you would give me some of that resolve as a preacher, as a follower of yours, and I pray that for our church this week. I pray that we'd be willing to stand for you and your words and your ways in our culture, even if it is dark, even if persecution comes in some way or another. May we stand and may we look for opportunities to tell people I love Jesus. I believe his words. I follow his ways. Thank you, Lord. Please, through the Spirit, enable us to do that this week. 
Help us in our weakness, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.